Thanks, ladies. That was awesome. Morning, everyone. Go ahead and uh, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And if you need a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of those home. That way you can have the Word of God with you. So Matthew chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. And we've been going through a series these past few weeks called, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And we've been looking at the prayer Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6. We've been looking at this model prayer and examining our personal prayer lives because our prayers reveal our thoughts and convictions about who God is, who we are, and the world that we live in. So as we continue on in our series today, we need to be continuously asking God what areas of our prayer life need to be challenged or changed to align with how the Lord teaches us to pray. And I know it's been a very impactful series so far for many of us, myself included. Every week as I'm standing in the lobby or as people are coming over to our house for lunch after church, um, people are just sharing how God's word is cutting them to the core and how they're being challenged by Jesus' instruction on prayer. And it's so awesome to see God's word and the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, convicting us and teaching us how to pray. So the series began in verse 5 of Matthew 6 with Jesus instructing his disciples how not to pray. He starts off with how not to pray. And he tells them not to be like the hypocrites who pray in public and on the street corners to seek and receive attention and praise. This is not how we are to pray, but instead to go to our private room and to pray to our Father, to have a one-on-one with God himself and expose our heart to him and let him work on us. Prayer is not a show that we put on to impress others, but a personal conversation we have with our Heavenly Father for Him to shape and form our hearts daily. Jesus also tells them not to pray like the idolaters who just babble on and on, thinking they're going to be heard for their many words. Instead, Jesus tells us that our Heavenly Father already knows what we need before we even ask Him, so we don't need to try and get His attention with this mindless repetition And we don't have to use fancy words, and we definitely don't need to ramble on and on to God who already knows what we need. Instead, we are to come before God, confidently knowing that he knows what we need, asking him and trusting him to answer our prayers in ways that most glorify him. After Jesus finished telling his disciples how not to pray, Jesus then tells them how they should pray, starting with our Father in heaven, our Father in heaven. This is how Jesus instructs us, instructs us to start off our prayer, acknowledging God as our Father. We're having a conversation with our Heavenly Father. This is not some pre-planned, memorized phrase or some saying that we speak to God like a ritual or a tradition. No, we're coming before God as our dad, as someone who knows us personally. Our perfect, holy, almighty, and good God wants us to address him as Father, as our dad. This sets the tone for the rest of the prayer, remembering we're having an intimate conversation with God, who is not only perfect and holy, but also personal and relational. But he's not just my heavenly father. He's not just your heavenly father. He is our heavenly father, all of us. We are saved by Christ, and we are saved into his body with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Our spiritual identity is not an I, but a we. It's not just me and God. 
It's all of us with God. So our prayers to our Heavenly Father reflect both the intimacy of a father and the community of a family of brothers and sisters. Jesus then instructs his disciples and us to pray for God's name to be honored as holy. This wasn't something he wanted us to just simply declare and move on. Jesus wants us to desire in our hearts that God's name be honored as holy, to be on the same page as God is, and for him to be glorified above all. Our hearts and our lives should honor God, and prayer is the perfect way for God to teach us how we can personally bring honor and glory to him, for him to work personally on our hearts so that we may overflow with the honor and glory his name deserves. This theme continues into the next verse of, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus continues the instruction of aligning our hearts with God to pray for his kingdom to come and for him to reign in our own lives. For him to not only just be our savior, but to be Lord over our lives. To soften our hearts, to submit to him as king and his kingdom work. And ultimately for his kingdom to come in its fullness, where God is ruling and reigning over a new heaven and earth. And as Revelation 21.4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Not only do we pray for his kingdom to come, but also his will to be done. Jesus is teaching us that God wants our hearts to desire and pray for the same things God desires. We ought to want God's mercy and justice to be displayed here and now, just as God would will it, and to pray for such things, trusting that God will answer in the way that is best for his kingdom and glory. And last week, Brandon preached on the first petition that Jesus teaches us to pray for ourselves, for God to give us our daily bread. The previous points of prayer have been focused on explicitly praising God and seeking his will, but now we see a turn in focus onto seeking God to meet our needs, our physical needs, our daily needs, our spiritual needs. We saw throughout the scriptures last week that not only does God meet our physical needs daily, but he also meets our spiritual needs daily through his word, as Jesus quoted to Satan in the desert, and he ultimately meets this spiritual need through Jesus himself being the living bread that John talks about whose flesh brings us life. Jesus promises to be enough for us today, each day, and it is up to us to take Jesus up on his offer for being our satisfaction for this day. We shouldn't hope to miss how Jesus can be our daily bread for this day. After Jesus teaches us this first petition for ourselves, he then gives us a second petition in verse 12, which says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is where we're going to be at this morning, diving into this second section for ourselves, this petition for ourselves that Jesus instructs us to pray continually as we live a life of faith and following God. So let's pray, and I'll read our chunk of scripture for this series. Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us. We thank you for the mercy and grace you've lavished upon us, that you have given us new life, new hope, new joy in you, that you have brought reconciliation and restoration and a restored relationship with you, God, that we can have you, the greatest treasure above all. 
Lord, we thank you for that. We're grateful for that. We thank you for your word, Lord, that it instructs us, that it teaches us about you, teaches us about us, teaches us about how great you are. God, I pray that your word can just be speaking to us this morning. It can be softening our hearts and challenging and convicting us in ways that you desire. God, I pray that you can just be teaching us about forgiveness and how you have forgiven us and how we are called to forgive as you forgave us. Just be with us this morning and may all the glory be given to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting in verse 5 of Matthew 6, so we get the whole picture of Jesus' teaching on this prayer and the context for our verse this morning. It says... Starting verse 5, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 12. So after instructing us to pray for our daily needs, Jesus teaches us to pray for our greatest spiritual need, forgiveness. Forgiveness. If there's one thing I've learned so far from this series in the Lord's Prayer, it's that Jesus does not hold back on the significance of prayer and what it entails. I mean, we've covered the holiness of God. We've talked about that fact that he is our father. We've covered the kingdom of God. We've covered the will of God. We've talked about the fulfillment of our daily needs through him. Jesus is covering everything from the huge theological concepts that get our heads spinning to the personal and vital things like having enough for each day. And now he brings up forgiveness. This is not an oh-so-easy and simple topic. Especially because he doesn't just leave it at, forgive us our debts. No, no. Jesus tacks on a few extra words that put asking for forgiveness in a whole new light. He says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Not only does he have these few words, more words to add, He also makes sure to clarify after the end of the prayer, just in case we missed it, in verses 14 through 15, saying, For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. This part of the Lord's Prayer focused on forgiveness is a big deal, and for good reason. Forgiveness is both what we need from God as sinful people separated from Him, and what should be demonstrated by those who have been forgiven by God. It's both what we need and what we ought to be demonstrating. 
And in this one verse, we see our sin problem. We see a forgiving God. We see the practice of confession and the faith-validating action of forgiving others. So let's get into the verse this morning, learning about the four different aspects of forgiveness we find in Jesus' words. The first aspect we see is our need for forgiveness. Our need for forgiveness. He says in verse 12, forgive us. The whole reason Jesus includes asking for forgiveness in his model prayer is that we have a problem. Sin. Sin. Now to be clear, Jesus, he did not need to ask for forgiveness because he was, is, and always will be perfect and sinless. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was faced with every temptation that we have faced, and he never caved. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and he is that perfect sacrifice for us. But Jesus knows all of humanity has a sin problem, for we have all sinned and have fallen short of God's glory, as Romans 3.23 says. So Jesus makes sure to address it in his model prayer, for us to learn from. And sin is such a huge problem. It condemns us to hell. It strips away the joy and the fullness of life by burying our conscience and guilt. And it ultimately separates us from God. Sin is undoubtedly the greatest problem for humanity. One commentator said, sin is the culprit In every broken marriage, disrupted home, shattered friendship, argument, pain, sorrow, and death. Sin is the moral and spiritual disease for which man has no cure. So Jesus includes our greatest problem and its solution of forgiveness in his teaching on prayer. So we understand that we have a sin problem that it runs rampant through all the hurt, pain, grief, and suffering in this world, and it's run rampant through our own hearts as well. But why does Jesus use the word debts in this prayer? He says, forgive us our debts. The word Jesus used for debts here refers to a moral or a spiritual debt. And for the Jews of that time, it actually corresponded with the word that was most common for them in the Aramaic for sin that they would have used in their daily language. And it also, their Aramaic term for it, also referred to this moral and spiritual debt to God. So we see that our sin puts us in this moral and spiritual debt to God, that it is unpayable within our own means. We don't have anything to offer to God. We just have filthy rags. We have nothing that could ever cancel out the debt that we owe due to our sin. And we're going to look at a parable later about this. So we've got quite a problem. Sin has gotten us into debt with God that we can't fix. So where does our hope lie? How is our debt, our problem of sin, solved? This takes us to the second aspect of forgiveness, that it's the solution to our sin problem. Forgiveness is the solution to our sin problem. If sin is our greatest problem, then our greatest need is forgiveness, and God provides exactly what we need. John MacArthur says, Deliverance from guilt by real forgiveness is man's deepest spiritual need. Apart from it, he cannot enter into a relationship with God that produces hope and peace. Without real forgiveness, you're not entering into a real 
intimate relationship with God that produces hope and peace. And this is why the gospel is such good news. God's sacrifice of his own son to cover the debt of our sin that we could never pay and the resurrection that grants us new life is the greatest, most freeing, and joyous news that we could ever hear. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8 says, We have redemption in him, in Jesus through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. We have redemption. We have forgiveness according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. We are forgiven the ultimate penalty of our sin through the saving work of Christ. But what about the rest of our days after putting our faith in Christ? Are we supposed to just suddenly be perfect and never sin again? I think we all know that is not the case. Our lives as followers of Christ should be marked by a, de a decreasing occurrence of sinning and an increasing awareness and distaste for sin. It should leave a meh taste in our mouth, you know. But if we just think back to the beginning of our day until now here, we'd realize we've probably already fallen short of God's standards. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, if I say I have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Although we are given new life in Christ, although we are freed from the bondage of sin, although we are given the Holy Spirit and that he dwells within us, our sinful nature has not been eradicated. We're still imperfect humans this side of heaven. So how does praying for forgiveness work for the sin in our day-to-day -day lives in light of the fact that we have been fully and completely forgiven when we put our faith in Christ as Savior? What we learn about forgiveness in this passage is that God grant, graciously grants us forgiveness in two different ways. We've already talked about the first way, the forgiveness that comes from Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, paying the debt of death for our sin and justifying us and making us righteous through his work and not our own. We'll refer to this forgiveness as judicial forgiveness. We receive God's judicial forgiveness the moment we trust Christ as our Savior from sin and death. We are declared righteous through Christ, and we are no longer under judgment or condemnation. We are forgiven. And it's not like Jesus needs to go and die on our behalf every time we sin again. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 with me, and we'll see this. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Right before the book of James, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. It says, For the Messiah, Jesus, did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times, as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. 
to come a second time and usher in his kingdom and its fullness and bring judgment. So it's this idea, once for all, one-time deal. This is why Paul can say in Romans 5, 18 and 19, so then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, Adam, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Jesus' death once for all gives us the freedom to proclaim what Paul says in Romans 8.1. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. Through God's judicial forgiveness, our sins today and in the future do not change our standing with God. But they do mess with the intimacy and the joy we have in our daily relationship with him. Thus, Jesus teaches us about God's second way of forgiveness, parental forgiveness. Think of this as a parent with their child. If your child sins against you, they're disobedient, they're rebelling, that doesn't change the status of your relationship with your child. You're still mom or dad, they're still your little kid. But until your child comes to you and apologizes, until reconciliation happens, the intimacy between the two of you has not been restored. Jesus instructs us that as we come before our Heavenly Father daily in prayer, to include asking for forgiveness so we can restore the intimacy and the joy between us and our Heavenly Father. And we've all experienced getting this relational roadblock out of the way, whether it's an argument between your spouse, a disagreement with a coworker, or a fight with a best friend. Nothing beats going to the person in humility, apologizing, and asking for forgiveness to restore the relational bond you had before the sin crept in and created division. Jesus models this in his prayer for us to God so we can have a daily restored and intimate relationship with God. And think of the flip side of this. If we come to God in prayer, not acknowledging the current sins in our life and asking for that parental forgiveness for the faults we've made, our prayers are just as phony and, and as unreal as the prayers of those who pray in the streets for praise. See, God knows every detail of our life. And trying to bypass or get around the awkwardness of the sin in our life and our prayer, it just it leads to no true intimacy at all with our Heavenly Father. It's just fake. Thus, we should daily follow Jesus' example in prayer of seeking and receiving the parental forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. What does this look like, though? From what we see from verse 12, the answer is twofold. And the first involves confession, which takes us to our third point, that confession is how we receive this forgiveness. Confession, how we receive forgiveness. Turn to 1 John 1, nine with me. 1 John 1, nine. Right before 2 and 3 John, right after 1 and 2 Peter. 1 John. Chapter 1, verse 9. John writes, If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful 
and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What an amazing promise from God. If we confess, he is faithful. How great is that? If we confess, he is faithful. In our prayers to God, after we've asked him for his name to be honored as holy, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, and for our daily bread, we need to own up to the fact that our hands and our feet are dirty from our sins. We need to show God that where we've gone wrong, how we've missed the mark on some things. And we need to ask our Heavenly Father to forgive us, to graciously show us his parental love and clean us up, wash up our hands and feet, so that we may have the fullness of joy and intimacy in our fellowship with God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How gracious and marvelous is our God. Turn to Psalm 32 now. Look at another example of confession. Psalm 32. David wrote a lot of psalms, and uh, in this one we get to see him wrestling with holding back his sin and not bringing it before God and the inner turmoil that that brings. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. David writes, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle, from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you took away the guilt of my sin. You took away the guilt of my sin. For those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ as our Savior, we can relate to David's words in this psalm. Before we had confessed our sins, before we had all laid it all out before God, the guilt of our poor decisions and wickedness was eating away at us from within. But when we acknowledge our sin before the Lord, he removes that unbearable burden of guilt from our sin. He gives us joy and peace and new life. He is faithful and just to forgive. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts to confess the ways in which we have sinned this day or this week. Now, this doesn't mean feeling the burden of having to try and remember and list off everything you can think of when you come before God in prayer, like, oh, Lord, what did I do wrong this week? But it does mean that we should examine ourselves before God, to ask him to reveal where we may be blind to the current sin in our lives, and for us to confess and ask for forgiveness. You know those prayers that can be scary to pray because of what the potential outcome may be? Like, Lord, teach me to better love my neighbors. And then you run into your neighbor from next door that you haven't introduced yourself to yet, and you're like, Lord, whoa, slow down. Like, I, I haven't even met this. Like, this isn't what I meant. I want something easier. Like, maybe I leave him a little card. Like, I don't want interaction yet. One of those prayers for myself comes from Psalm 139. And it's the last two verses of the psalm, verses 23 and 24. 
in which David states, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts, my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See if there is any offensive way in me to lead me in the way everlasting. Talk about a great way and a very scary way to ask God to help us see the blind spots of sin in our life because he will definitely point them out. Prayerful self-examination combined with confession to God leads us to a heart-lifting, joyous, and peaceful, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, I did say the practical answer to seeking and receiving forgiveness was twofold. So what's the other side to receiving forgiveness from our Heavenly Father? Let's turn back to Matthew 6 and look at the rest of verse 12 and verses 14 and 15 for further clarity and for our final point this morning. Our forgiveness of others is proof of being forgiven. Our forgiveness of others is proof of being forgiven. Matthew 6, 12 says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jumping down to verse 14. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. Jesus makes it very clear. I mean, he goes out, his, out of his way after the end of the prayer to address the idea again that the other side to confessing and asking for forgiveness is showing forgiveness to those who have sinned against you. I mean, the idea is simple. If we forgive, we will be forgiven. If we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. But the practicality of that, the putting into practice of that, I would say is nearly, if not completely impossible, without the work of the Holy Spirit on our hearts, because we know how wicked these things are. And I mean, think of the horrors and the atrocities that people have done to other people. Abuse, murder, sexual sin, cheating, lying, stealing, abandoning. The list goes on and on. But what was Christ's response to the people who beat him? To the people who tortured him? To the people who spat on him? To the people who cursed him? And to the people who nailed him to the cross to suffer and to die? Luke records in verse 34 of chapter 23 of his gospel that Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. A man named Richard Sibbs said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. How true this is. God's image bearers, us, humans, have continuously and ceaselessly sinned against our creator, our source of life, our heavenly father, and yet his mercy exceeds all the sin within all of humanity. What Jesus is teaching us in the second part of verse 12 is that those who live by God's forgiveness must reflect that same forgiveness to their own lives, in their own lives. As one commentator said, the one whose only hope 
is that God will not hold his faults against him, forfeits his right to hold others' faults against them. The one whose only hope is that God will not hold his faults against him, forfeits his right to hold others' faults against them. Forgiveness is the proof of a true new life in Christ. And to clarify quickly, this text isn't saying, and I am not saying, that you earn God's forgiveness through forgiving others. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven, not forgive us because we have also forgiven. Jesus is saying that showing forgiveness to others is the fruit of, or the proof of, truly being forgiven by God. And those who fail to forgive someone else label themselves as a hypocrite. They are setting themselves up as a higher judge than God himself, saying, this person, this person doesn't deserve forgiveness. This person doesn't deserve your grace. And in all actuality, they're calling, they're calling out the authenticity of their faith. For a perfect example of this, turn to Matthew chapter 18 with me, starting in verse 21. This is that parable that I mentioned earlier that fits in so well. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came to him, Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter's trying to be generous. As many as seven times? Jesus, Jesus says, I tell you not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. He wanted to deal with the debt that people owed him. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents, 10,000 talents is 60 million denarii, which is 60 million days worth of wages. That's an impossible debt to pay back. So one who owed 60 million denarii, 10,000 talents, was brought before him. Since the slave had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. But that same slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, a hundred days worth of wages, three months worth of wages, compared to 60 million days worth of wages. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after the king had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly Father 
will also do to you if you, each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. When we refuse to forgive someone who has sinned against us, we are failing to reflect the mercy and forgiveness that God first showed us. And to make it clear, forgiving someone doesn't mean the sin that was done no longer has any consequences. Go back to the example of a parent and child. If a child disobeys their parent and apologizes, that doesn't negate the fact that there are consequences to their actions, like more chores. If someone has wronged you in some way, especially illegally, there are consequences to those actions, whether it be fines or jail time or whatever. What forgiveness is, though, is it's more about the internal attitude of your heart, not the external consequences of the one who sinned against you. God calls us to forgive as he forgives us. In fact, he calls us to love our enemies and to pray for them, pray for them. As Jesus says earlier in Matthew 5:44, to not hold on to bitterness and hatred in our heart, because in doing so we are failing to show the mercy that God first showed us, which freed us from the guilt of our sin. And Jesus warns us, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. We actually went through that parable last week at youth group, and my wife and I, or my wife and a student, were having a discussion about this idea of withholding forgiveness. And the student brought up the fact that withholding forgiveness is ultimately withholding the gospel. When we withhold forgiveness, we're saying the other person is too far gone for grace, too far gone to be reconciled and redeemed by God. And that's the last thing God would ever want us to do. So what better way to show the gospel in action, to show the love of God and forgiveness that he offers than through our own personal relationships, including our enemies? In verse 12 of the Lord's Prayer, and in the PS section, the postscript section of verses 14 and 15, Jesus teaches us four different aspects about God's forgiveness. He shows us our need for it because of our sin. He shows us the solution it provides to our sin problem. He shows us how to receive it through confession. And finally, he shows us how to know we've been forgiven by it, by how we forgive others. So my final questions to you this morning are this. Can you pray the Lord's Prayer? Can you say as verse 12 does, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors? Let's stand and pray. Father, we are so humbled and so thankful for the forgiveness you've shown us. God, may it be transforming our hearts. May it be changing our lives. May it be overflowing into the relationships that we have with people at work, people at home, people at school. God, teach us to forgive. Lord, we are so weak. Our hearts are stubborn and wicked at times. Lord, I pray that you can soften our hearts and 
Help us to forgive others as you forgave us. May your spirit work through us to love those that are our enemies. God, may you help us see the the blind spots of sin in our lives that we may be faithful and confess those to you knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive those sins. Father, we thank you for the loving God, the loving Father that you are to us. Pray that you just be with us this week, be guiding us, helping us to forgive as you forgave us. In Jesus' name, amen.